Welcome to the BadgeCast One podcast with your host, Brian Ellis, a 20-plus year veteran police leader who's dedicated to helping police officers be their highest and best. Our show aims to dive deep to deliver leadership strategies of top experts to turbocharge public safety leadership. This podcast is brought to you by the National Command and Staff College. To find out more about our team, please visit us at www.commandcollege.org. The National Command and Staff College is passionate about enhancing your leadership capabilities and building the best version of you. Good day, everyone. Welcome back to the BadgeCast One podcast. I'm your host, Brian Ellis. And today we're going to be speaking with Dan Pink. Dan is a very thought-provoking author of many New York Times bestsellers, including his latest, Win, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. He's a very fascinating individual. I wish we had more time to spend with Dan. We are very grateful for the time that he gave us today, and I hope you enjoy our show. As always, I look forward to your feedback, which you can provide at my email at bellis at commandcollege.org. Finally, I urge you to check out the National Command and Staff College at www.commandcollege.org to see the wide array of opportunities available to turbocharge your leadership potential. You can sign up for updates, look at our calendar events, or reach out to us to host a training in your area. Thanks again for listening today, and here we go. All right. Good morning, Dan. How are you doing today? I'm very good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So I know your last book was uh, released in January of 18. Are you uh, you working on anything fun right now or what's uh, what's Mr. Pink up to? I'm trying to figure out what the next big project is going to be. So I have a bunch of different um, irons in the fire. If we'll forgive that cliche. Mm-hmm. So uh, not, I'm not sure which ones are going to end up being the, the go to ones yet, but I have a bunch of different things um in, in in process right now <laughs> are you uh, are you reading anything fun or have you come across something that you really uh, actually the book that I, the book that i'm reading now just i mean for whatever i don't i don't know what it says about anything is um uh it's a book um it's a biography of walt disney by neil gabler that's so thinking about things like walt disney had a huge impact on the 20th century 20th century America. And I don't know anything about him. I'm not a huge Disney fan, but a couple of people have recommended that book and that's what I'm reading right now. Nice. I really wanted to have you on our show because I've, I followed your work for a long time. It's, it's really resonated with me. I, I know I reached out to you a number of years ago when I was doing my uh, graduate work because there's just so much, uh, uh, you got a lot of good content that just I, I think the police departments need. So I think a lot of good police departments have a strong desire to improve their performance and connectivity. But sure, of course, we do a lot of things still kind of uh, old school, so to speak. And um, uh, one thing that I heard you talk about one time was this uh, overdosing on control. Can you can you kind of yeah. flesh it out for me a little bit? Well, that's really about. That idea is really about some of the research on motivation and, you know, what is, and that, and that begins with the question of if we look at, if we go beyond our gut instincts about what motivates people and how to run organizations, and we rely less on our gut instincts and more on science, what does science tell us? And it turns out there's this very rich body of science accumulated over the last 50 years or so that looks at you know, in a very hard-headed analytic way, what really motivates people on the job, what motivates people to do great work in almost any kind of endeavor. And I, I, one of the conclusions of that, is, I mean, the big conclusion of that is that a lot of our instincts, a lot of our muscle memory about motivation in organizations is just totally wrong. Uh, some of it's not wrong, but, but some of it is just completely backward. Um, and um, among, within, within that universe of ideas, is that um, so many management practices, whether it is based on, whether it is in the private sector, whether it's in the public sector, almost regardless of function, are predicated on control. Uh, and for a long time, management was essentially about, I, I think it still is, that the whole notion of management is uh, about getting compliance, getting people to do what you want them to do the way you want them to do it. Uh, it has its legacy in the, 
you know, the Frederick Winslow Taylor industrial age, uh, let's ring out efficiencies, let's do everything the same way over and over and over again. And that's actually a very valuable approach for certain kinds of tasks. But um, when you get into other kinds of tasks, and I would argue, you know, when, I would, when you get into other kinds of tasks, it becomes more, um, more, more complex. And so there's certain, if you think about any job as a, as a, as a basket of, of tasks to be done, then some of those tasks people perform better when they're, you, you need some control over. You have to do things in a certain way. And I, certainly in policing, there's certain aspects of policing where you have to go by the letter of the rules and regulations. Um, on the other hand, um, if you have people who are only compliant, uh, you probably, they're probably not going to be performing at their highest level because we know for people to be truly engaged, the mechanism for getting to be truly engaged is self-direction. And uh, that's the opposite of control. So in some ways, we're trying to control people as a way to get them engaged. And that's a fool's errand because people don't engage by being controlled. They engage by getting there under their own steam. So we have to look for ways in organizations, again, public, private, white collar, blue collar, whatever, to give people a little bit more autonomy and to have managers exert a little less control. Yeah, I so true, especially with, uh, you know, policing itself is there's just a lot of gray area and uh, policing is a very yeah policing is a very difficult one because there are elements of i mean i mean literally like like policing is very co complicated because when we think about control when we think about compliance you know compliance is two different two different things compliance is basically doing what your boss tells you to do the way your boss tells you to do it but in policing there's actually another layer of that in that there are a set of laws, not to mention the United States Constitution, that dictate what you can and cannot do. And so, uh, so, so there is an element of policing where people on the ground have to be compliant in some ways. But if people are merely compliant, they're not going to be good public safety officials. Right. I like your term. Um, another term that, that I've heard you talk about is, is really about healthy goals. And I think, um, I, you know, when I when I read some of your work about attaining mastery, that when uh, when health uh, healthy goals really we chase a lot of goals that have a lot of negative consequences, and and I think in policing we have to do a lot more with less. And that approach, we're still in the service industry, and so you know, what mm -hmm. are your thoughts in regards to really creating healthy goals in in the context of public safety? That's a great question too. And I think it's really, really hard. I mean, I'd rather Brian talk to you and just dispense really easy, simple answers and say, Oh, this is a totally simple problem to solve. Just do these three things. But I think in this, in this case, it's absolutely not the case. There's a lot of complexity, a lot of nuance. Here's what we, you know, you know, to oversimplify a bit, here's what we know about goals. Goals in some ways get off easy as a concept. Uh, we think that goals are universally good and valuable. And the truth of the matter is much more nuanced. Goals can be extraordinarily good for certain kinds of things. But there also is, you know, another, there's a dark side of goals. And in some ways, it's, it's very much connected to what we were talking about before. What we know about goals is that goals narrow our focus. Okay. Now, a narrowed focus is very good for certain kinds of things. Um, but uh, too narrow of a focus can, can blind us to other things that matter. So if you have goals in a, you know, I don't know what, you know, let, let's say that, I mean, this is a simple minded a, a, a example, but if you say, if you, if you have goals um, of like, uh, you know, a parking, you know, let's use quotas for example. Yeah, right. Okay. So, so quotas, quotas for arrests or quotas for parking tickets or quotas for something else like that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm going to write yeah. 20 tickets you know today. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if you have, if you have a quota to write 20 tickets, Chances are, and, and your compensation or your job is linked to that, chances are you are going to write 20 tickets, okay? Because your focus is narrowed to, what the, to, to writing those 20 tickets. That doesn't mean that public safety or public order is going to go up. Indeed, it could go down because you exactly. could be spending all your time writing tickets when there's something else more important going on there. Or... You could start writing tickets for things that are on the edge where otherwise a, a professional like a public, you know, anybody in public safety who is a professional, who's well-trained, who has to use his or her discretion all the time. You stop using your discretion 
you give somebody a ticket for something that if there weren't a quota, you wouldn't have given them a ticket. And suddenly you start undermining, you know, you slowly undermine people's confidence in the police force. Um, and, and so again, that, you know, that there are certain things where you want to narrow focus. There are other things where you don't want to narrow focus. And, you know, what I, I think what we have to do with, let, let's, let's, let's take police officers is we have to, you know, we have to treat police officers as we would treat any other kind of intelligent professional. And, um, and we don't treat intelligent professionals with quotas typically. Uh, we don't treat management consultants with quotas. We don't treat accountants with quotas. We don't treat lawyers with quotas typically. And so, and, and here you have people, and, and again, like well, what police officers do is in, in so many ways not routine. There are some things that are routine, um, but, but so much of it is about uh, wisdom, discretion, judgment, creativity. And what we know for those kinds of attributes, just, you know, wisdom, uh, discernment, uh, creativity, what we know about those attributes is that those are attributes where a narrow focus doesn't work for you. Uh, you want to have an expansive focus. And so quotas and things like that uh, can have a very narrowing, can have a very narrowing, uh, very narrowing focus. How much do you think humility uh, plays into that? Humility? Yeah. Um, in, in what sense? Well, ju- just in, in just your focus in regards to just, let's say, you know, just having good wisdom, having, you know, just having oh, a good focus oh, on your job. I mean, the, the, the common, oh, oh, so that's a great point. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So for, uh, I mean, I don't see how you can be wise without being humble. I think that, I think that it's not possible. So, um, uh, you know, be, because wisdom depends what, what, you know, what it, what is wisdom? Wisdom is being able to see the world accurately and make good decisions about that. And mm-hmm. a starting point for that and any individuals to say, Hmm, maybe what if I'm wrong? Maybe I don't know as much as I do. Maybe I should listen more than I talk. Maybe I should ask questions more than I offer answers. So I think that humility is enormously, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't see how, again, as I said before, Brian, I don't, I don't see how you have wisdom without humility. And, and I think that some of those other attributes depend on, on, um, on humility as well. Now, in the thing is, I think that quotas in some ways are incompatible with humility. Right. Because you don't care whether you're right or wrong. You care whether you get to number 20. Well, I think sometimes it's just not even a number as it exists. I think sometimes police work, you have a really hard time defining what is good police work. And it's because it's yeah, complicated. Yeah, fair point. Right. Um, right. You know, one police officer judges his work by how many bad guys I'm going to arrest today. And another person... Uh-huh judges their police work at how detailed of an investigation I'm going to do. Whereas another sure. police officer goes, how am I going to best take care of somebody that I come in contact with? So that there's so many different variables. And I think that exactly all three are valuable, but I think that as a manager myself, you look for somebody that can do all three and know when to apply each portion of their job. And I think it does come with wisdom, but it also comes with, you know, I chip away at it if I overdose on control or if I don't sell, set healthy goals. And so I kind of start, I keep, I guess, coming back to that being humble in regards to what I ask mm-hmm. for in people and making sure that they're just, they're just at least thinking about humility. Uh, I think that's great. And also, I think it's a great point. And also that the people in leadership mo- uh, model that humility. Um, right. You know, it's, it's hard for a boss to tell somebody, you know, be humble, show humility when the boss is a total jerk and is, <laughs> you know, displays no humility herself or himself. Uh, so, so that's, that's, that's obviously a big factor. The other thing about, the other thing about these more, again, it, it, these are, these are very similar because, because, um, um, uh, quotas are a form of control, really. Um, and, and, you know, I'm trying to control your behavior. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to write 20 tickets today. So I'm controlling your behavior. I think the challenge for police officers, again, this is coming uh, obviously from an outsider's perspective, is that, you know, you, 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 you start your shift as a police officer. You have no idea what the next eight or 10 hours are going to bring. Mm-hmm. When you sit down in your office as an accountant, you, have, you can predict pretty well what the next 10, or 10 hours are going to be like. But when you're a police officer, you have no freaking idea. That's that's very true. Very true. 
Uh, one thing I read in one of your books, I want to pivot real quick because I think it's something that resonates with, will, will resonate with a lot of police officers is this, when I, when I read, um, this notion of heart health and the correlation it has with P, type A people, you know, yeah. uh, I was reading the Dr. Friedman's, uh, information and I think it was in drive and I was like, oh my God, I'm a goner because uh-huh. uh, thinking about police officers, most police officers are very type A personalities. That's what the profession really attracts, which is great right. in a lot of ways, but there's so many parts of that that just uh, lead to, you know, just overall health and wellness uh, that yeah. negatively yeah. impact it. So yeah. uh, if, you know, police officers, I think, deal with people at their maddest, saddest, and baddest. And we already mm-hmm. have this competitive kind of dealing with people who are aggressive. We might be a little impatient. We're dealing with sure. urgent matters. How, sure. if you could give a police officer some advice in regards to just being a type A person and the impact it has on their wellness and maybe what to do, how to mitigate some of that, what would you say? Well, I mean, I would say that there are two different ways of, there are two different ways of, what we're talking about here essentially is stress. And uh, there are two different kinds of stress that we know. I mean, I'm oversimplifying a bit, but when you look at both the medical research and the psychological research, we can pretty simply categorize stress into two different types. One, there's acute stress and chronic stress. Acute stress is, oh my God, uh, uh, somebody, uh, just, uh, robbed the convenience store and I need to chase him down the block. Okay. That's acute stress. Chronic stress is, is not in response to a particular moment or a circumstance, but just is hanging over you all the time. Now, I think that police officers might well experience both. And what we know is that, is that, is that acute stress is actually can be a performance enhancer. Um, it gets you going. Um, acute stress is, is an evolutionary response that, that allowed us to survive. And so acute, so, so being able to feel acute stress and respond to it quickly is a survival skill in all human beings and a professional advantage for police officers. Now, chronic stress, which is this a lower grade stress that never goes away, that's omnipresent, whether you're on duty or off duty, that has horrifying health consequences for people both their mental health and their physical health. It has, it has, it, it has corrosive effect. It, it, it contributes to heart disease. It contributes to other kinds of ailments that, that cask- you know, contributes to problems with weight. It contributes to problems with metabolic health. And, and, and that's a, that's a, that's a terrible problem. And I, and I think that, that acute stress, uh, sorry, chronic stress is in some ways a, a, a serious occupational hazard for police officers. And, this is why, and, and I think it's a hard sell in, in some ways. This is why of all of the enterprises out there, you know, some kind of wellness program for seems urgent for police officers to ensure that police officers, as much as anybody in the workforce, are getting adequate rest, eating properly, um, uh, exercising, and then maybe even doing things that are probably a little woo-woo for police officers, many police officers, but things like, you know, meditation and yoga and other kinds of practices that, that we know enhance our well-being. But, um, um, you know, I, I haven't thought about much until you, you raise it, but some, you know, police officers who don't get enough sleep, who don't eat well and don't exercise are not going to be as good police officers as those who do. Right. Yeah. I, I think there's going to be a huge correlation with just like you said, just uh, having good balance. Yeah. The entire approach that you take to your life. And yeah. a lot of times guys take that stuff home. And, right. And then but all, all of these things, all these things, nutrition and sleep and exercise and even things like, again, recognizing the woo-ness of it for some people, things like meditation and whatnot. Those can be ways to maybe not eradicate chronic stress, but to reduce it or to erase it in many instances. Right. And then, um, you know, there's a lot of body of work, especially in, in policing, that, that says that the vast majority of stress that police officers face is, is from their own organizations. They have, you know, this divide between, you know, line level and management. Yeah, and, yeah. And 
you know, I've, I've talked to people in other industries and whatnot, and they've kind of have similar issues. And so, yeah, I mean, really, realistically, how do you, how do you mend that divider? How do you help build a more cohesive organization? Uh, but because it seems like there's a lot of work lost and there are a lot of time lost when, yeah. when uh, everybody's not on, you know, rowing in the same direction. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I think that's a hard, I think it's a, that's a, that's a very, very hard problem. And, and again, I'd love to be able to say to you, Hey, just do these six things in this order and everything will be right. But I, I think that's, I think that's not the case. Uh, you, you know, what you, what you're at, you know, a way to rephrase your question is what is leadership in some ways? And so, you know, what is leadership? And that, we don't, there's no definition of that, but what we know from at least some of the research is that, um, is that the best leaders will have a very clear and compelling vision that people feel like they're working toward. We know that the best leaders, uh, in, in many cases, their default assumption is that uh, people will do the right thing. And so offering autonomy is better than imposing control. Uh, we know that the very best leaders foster a sense of belonging, which I think is connected to that sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that the very best leaders also uh, have, um, I mean, I think in the, in the, in the, in the particular case of, of police officers, I think that the very best leaders have to focus on the overall wellness of their team, not simply their narrow performance on the job, but their overall wellness, because those two things are inextricably linked. And I think the very best leaders, we know this from other kinds of research, uh, uh, the people who they're, whom they're, who they're leading have to feel like the leader has their back. Um, and you know, those five or six elements, which are, you know, again, really easy for me to announce in a conversation with you, but extraordinarily difficult to put into practice on the ground every single day in these kinds of environments. Right. Yeah, no. And I see, um, I also see there's, there's gotta be some kind of, especially in policing, there's gotta be some kind of level of playfulness too. I think sometimes people are always just so serious. And, um, do you, yeah. do, you, do you find that do you, do you find, uh, do you, do you like well, your workspace? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting. You say that. I, I think, uh, I, I think it's a really, really good point. It's connected to a principle that we know a lot. Again, just again, going, you know, well, you know, once again, I'm not a police officer. I've never been a police officer. Um, I, I don't want to, present myself as some kind of expert in this domain in which I'm absolutely not an expert. But what we know from a broader array of research in teams of every kind is one of the other things that helps teams perform at a high level is what's known as, uh, this is from the work of Amy Edmondson at Harvard, uh, what's known as psychological safety, which is essentially people feel safe. Uh, I don't mean physically safe, but, but safe in that, like if they, they're not, um, they're not, they're not doing their jobs. There, there are many people out there who do their jobs and their only goal in life is not to make a mistake. And those people do not perform very well. If your only goal in life is not to make a mistake. When they're in environments that provide psychological safety, they're less concerned about making a small mistake because they know they're not going to get clobbered for it. Uh, they don't, you know, you don't want to make big mistakes or important mistakes, but so they have a sense of psychological safety. And I think when people have a, a sense of psychological safety, they are a little bit looser. And I think that contribute to a, a playfulness and having a little bit of fun. I think that is the, the outgrowth of being in a, a situation where, the, where you have some psychological safety. And, I, and, I, and again, I would, I would think that for policing, because it's so high stress um, and, and because um, you know, there's always this risk of physical danger, that psychological safety would be even more important for police officers. Mm. Yeah. Well, especially in the, I think that safety too, I, I see it in, in like a management meeting, everybody's competing for good ideas and right. you definitely don't want to say something that, you know, the rest of your group is going to go, Oh, this guy's what, you know, he's sniffing glue, but, um, right, right, uh, right. But know, here's the thing, psychological, psychological in the conditions of psychological safety, People would not think that, all right? right? And so 
they, they wouldn't think that. And then if they offered an idea that was completely whacked, their teammates, their colleagues wouldn't clobber them. And, and, and when you're in conditions of psychological safety, you, you make a very interesting point. I mean, in conditions of psychological safety, um, you might get some bad ideas, but it, almost everything I know about work <laughs> over the last 20 years, both studying it and doing it, is that there is no way to have good ideas without generating a few bad ideas first. Yeah, I think I heard you say the best way to generate uh, good ideas is, is to have a lot of ideas. Totally. I agree with that completely. But I also think there's times where ideas come into the world half-baked and they're, you know, they almost take other people to look at your idea and go, eh, you're, I, you know, I kind of know where you're going, but have you thought about these things? And it almost kind of seems like it starts a chain reaction. Uh, I, 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 I think what you're saying there is one of the most important things about how what makes some organizations effective and some teams effective and others not. Um, there has to be a willingness at certain stages to take an idea. Here's the thing. If, 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 if we're in a setting and there's an idea that is, that is wobbly, um, we have two options. One, we can, and, and everybody recognizes that it's wobbly. One, we can strengthen it. Two, we can use the wobbliness to, wobbliness to destroy it. And I actually think that people have different instincts in this regard. Some people are destructive. Some people are constructive. Now, destruction isn't always bad. There's some ideas that are so bad, <laughs> you want to slay them. But I think that most ideas are kind of in the middle. And so, as you say, a wobbly idea, you can, a wobbly idea is relatively easy to knock down. And so people often will delight in knocking down wobbly ideas. But other people will say, well, wait a second, what's a way to make it less wobbly? What if we did this? What if we did that? What if we took away this one piece, not the entire idea, and then replaced it with something else? And, and whether people are instinctually constructive or destructive is, to me, a pretty good predictor of levels of psychological safety. Right. Yeah, that safety transcends a lot of different things. I mean, you, yeah. some organizations have power groups where, you know, if you're in the in-club, uh, you could you could throw out a wobbly idea and exactly and it, and so it's it's really kind of expanding that safety to everybody. Every, everybody has harness. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So, so since we're talking about ideas and 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 whatnot, um, I think every manager, especially in a police organization, knows news meetings. You're going to have a steady supply of meetings, and I know in your new book you you talk about uh, this, this concept of meetings that I think is very interesting. Um, and, you know, can you just, I think most police departments have very structured meetings. So they're, they're at the same mm -hmm. time they're uh, because of overlaps and shift work and everything else. So we bring people together at the same time, but those mm -hmm. meetings lose a lot of momentum because of their structure. Mm -hmm. You know, what are your thoughts on a productive meeting? Well, I mean, most meetings are not productive. Um, <laughs> there's some there's some really interesting research being that's been done by a fellow named Stephen Rogelberg at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, who's essentially devoted his whole academic career to studying what why you know why some meeting why most meetings stink and why a few are are pretty good. One of the things that there's a there's a, a ginormous mismatch in perception. So typically in meetings, um, at the end of a meeting, the people like you know the, the the people who thought the meeting was very good and successful are the people in charge uh, of the meeting. Nobody else thought that, but they you know, so there's this total gap in perceptions. The people attending the meeting didn't really like it. The people who ran it ran it loved it. Um, so, but there are a lot, there are a lot of small, there are a lot of small remedies for this. So one of them would be to, um, uh, there are a lot of small remedies to this. So one of them would be basically to challenge the idea that you need a meeting. So, you know, every time you're about to schedule a meeting, you should ask yourself, does this really need a meeting? Um, and if that would eliminate even a small fraction of meetings, things would be better. Another thing, to, another way to run uh, uh, productive meetings, and this is from Stephen Rogelberg, is that 
you know, meetings are basically taking people away from something they want to or need to be doing to go to a meeting. And so, um, and so once, and so I, I think that you have to um, have a clear purpose and a very, very clear purpose for the meeting that needs to be announced both in advance and during the meeting itself. The reason we're having this meeting is X, Y, and Z. Um, and then there's some smaller tactical things. I, I am a huge fan of standing meetings where people have to stand. Uh, there is other research showing that they, that if you go from a, uh, um, a sitting meeting to a standing meeting, then uh, the, the quality of the meeting, the outcome of the meeting, the decisions made in the meeting are completely ineffective. So there's no difference in outcome between standing meetings and sitting meetings, except standing meetings are much shorter. So you save time and, and don't sacrifice anything in the way to productivity. Um, I also think that we have to get rid of this ridiculous idea that every meeting has to be either a half an hour or an hour. Uh, and so what I've started doing based in part on Rogelberg's book is that if I have say a half hour meeting, I will schedule it for 20 minutes. You know, um, and the truth is, is I can get as much done in 20 minutes as I can in 30 minutes and I can use that extra 10 minutes to do something else. If I have an hour meeting, I say, I want to get this meeting, you know, I'd like to make this a 45 minute meeting or 50 minute meeting. And what you end up doing is you end up getting as much done with just by shrinking that, just by shrinking that time, that little tiny dial up and pressure gets people to perform, gets people to perform even better. So there are all kinds of small tactical things that we can do on, on meetings. Uh, and the other thing is, is that, uh, you know, the people running the meetings have, have a big role. One of, the, one, of the, one of the things I admire in people who are good at running meetings is that they will often solicit opinions from people who maybe aren't speaking up themselves. Uh, what you see at every meeting since the beginning of meetings in human civilization is that, that there are a few people who love to talk and hear their voice. Uh, and that is completely uncorrelated with the with the quality of their contribution. Meanwhile, there are other people who are less eager to talk, but might have something to say. So really good people who run really good meetings will look at somebody and say, hey, Brian, I haven't heard from you. What do you think about this? Or Maria, uh, what's your view on this? Making sure that everybody gets to say. Yeah, one thing that uh, I loathe about meetings, and you, you touched on it, was um, that you know, there might be a s agenda put out, but the agenda is just so open-ended where you really don't know what's going mm. to be discussed. And so mm -hmm. I always feel like uh, I'm not really good at being Johnny on the spot on things mm -hmm. when it involves like uh, idea generation. If it's just an informational mm -hmm. meeting that John Johnny mm -hmm. on the spot is fine for me because I'm just taking right. information. But when we're, right. when we're like trying to brainstorm or have a good, creative mm -hmm. session, I feel paralyzed, uh, not having sure. that time to float ideas and maybe you're not alone. It, it, and it's even floating those ideas with peers or subordinates or community members. I mean, uh, or, or being in the gym when I, I have that aha moment, I just, uh, yeah. I mean, what you could do on that, what leaders of the meeting could do on that would be to say, we're going to have a brainstorm meetings about new ways to do whatever. Um, uh, please come to the meeting with five or six ideas and then we'll offer up the ideas at the meeting and talk about them. That way people can generate their ideas on their own time rather than some people are really good at sitting there and coming up with ideas, you know, off the top of their head. Other people are not. I don't think that there's any different. I don't think there's any difference in the quality of the ultimate ideas. It's just that, you know, <laughs> some people are, I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, you see this all the time. There, there are, they're, they're, they're people who are good performers, who are good talkers, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're good at their jobs. Mm -hmm. Well, going back to that cognitive thing, I, I know you've discussed the idea of peak trough recovery. And um, do you, I mean, obviously, do you think that impacts meetings as well? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. one of the things that we know from the research on timing is that People tend to move through the day exactly as you say in these three stages, peak trough recovery. Most of us, about 80% of us, move through the day in that order. Peak early in the day, trough around the early to mid-afternoon, and recovery later in the day. 
people who are night owls, it's much more complicated. They hit their peak much, 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 much later in the day, you know, in the uh, early evening, mid evening, even late evening. And what we know is that during the peak, yeah, that's when we're most vigilant. So that's when we should be doing our more analytic work that requires heads down and focus. During the trough, which for almost all of us is the early to mid afternoon, that's generally a terrible time of day. There are huge decrements in performance across many, many domains during that period. So what we should be doing during that stretch of time is work that doesn't require massive brain power or creativity or administrative tasks like answering routine email or filling out reports. And then the recovery period, again, which for most of us is late afternoon and early evening, that's a very interesting time. You know, you, you, our, our mood is up, but our vigilance is down. And that makes us a little bit more mentally loose, which allows us to do some of these more iterative, iterative things. And so if you look at the science of timing, it suggests a very clear set of design principles. We should be doing our analytic work during our peak, which again, for 80% of us is in the morning. For, uh, we should be doing our administrative work during the trough, which for most of us, nearly all of us, is the early to mid-afternoon. And we should be doing recover our, our, our insight work, our more creative, iterative work in the recovery, which is late afternoon and early evening. And just to circle back to your question, um, we don't do that. We don't do that at an individual level, and we sure as heck don't do it at a team level. So when we schedule meetings and organizations, the only criterion that we use is availability. Uh, we, we don't say, oh, what kind of meeting is this? Do we need people to be really analytic and focused? Is this a brainstorming meeting where people need to be looser? Is this simply a stupid meeting about our petty cash policy? Um, and we don't ask, we don't ask who's going to be there. People who are more, um, you know, evening, e evening types who are better late at night, uh, people who are better in the morning. We don't even say that. We just say, hey, is the conference room open and is, a, is there a slot on the schedule? So, you know, the scheduling of meetings has essentially zero strategic foundations. Yeah, that's that's good stuff. And I think especially in police organizations, the the shift work complicates things even more. Uh, that's even hard. Yeah, right. Shift, yeah, shift work is very, very hard on, on people. There's a lot of research on shift work, and it shows that it's just it, it really is not good for people, both mentally and physically, so some, um, especially if they're doing it over a long, 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 long period of time. This is another, but you know, in police work, it can't be avoided. So right. this is another reason why a focus on wellness is, you know, again, which seems a little touchy feely is very important for, for, uh, uh, recruiting talent, for nurturing talent, getting the best out of talent. Um, and it's, to me, it's another element of wellness. Right. So with this peak trough and recovery kind of idea, I mean, is that pretty much how, I mean, as a writer, um, is that kind of how you structure your day? Uh, you know, how, how, it, how, do, how does once I, once I, once, once I learned that I, I did, absolutely. So what I do, I'm much more of a morning person than an evening person. So, um, since writing requires vigilance and focus, I try to do all my writing in the morning. Uh, and what I will do on writing days is I will come into my office. I will not even bring my office is just the garage behind my house. I will not even bring my phone with me into the office to avoid distractions. I won't open my email. I won't go on Twitter or ESPN or anything like that. And I'll give myself um, a word count. Uh, you know, today I have to write 700 words or 800 words and I won't do everything until I hit that word count. And if you write 700 words a day, every day, the pages really start to add up. Mm -hmm. um, so, so f at least with that being said, um, you know, and I don't consider myself, uh, by any stretch of the means, uh, a, a, a big time author or anything, but I've done my fair share of writing and I find that sometimes my writing's awfully messy in regards to just, I think everybody feels that there's this natural process to writing anything where you, you do mm -hmm. research. You, then you have an outline, then you do some more research and then you start plugging all your research into the outline mm -hmm. and then you just mm -hmm. fill in your mm -hmm. ideas around that, which yeah. that doesn't work for me. And a lot of times I find myself squirreling off in a different direction as I start digging mm -hmm. or even making myself stop or even abandoning an idea altogether. 
you know, what are your thoughts on, on just, I mean, is it, is the, the act of writing and researching for you kind of a messy process? It's uh, it's hideously messy all the time. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, that's how, that, that, that's how it works. Somehow we've been fed this pack of lies that it is that very orderly process that you say. And for most people I know it, and most people who are writers, it doesn't work that way at all. Um, you know, uh, there's uh, you know, writing terrible first drafts, I think is another key to write is another key to writing. Endlessly rewriting and editing is also enormously important. Uh, a lot of times, if especially in something that is research based, at least for me, and I assume for most people doing any kind of writing that depends on research is that in, you know, I'll say, okay, I've done the research for this section or, or this chapter. And then as I start writing, it's like, holy smokes, I need to know this. I need to know that. I need to know that. You know, and I find all kinds of holes that subsequent research needs to fill. So, uh, yeah, it's a very, very horrible and messy process. Do you go to the same places for your research or do you, uh, you know, how does Dan do his research? Uh, it depends. I like to cast a pretty wide net. So I, and it depends on what I'm doing research on. It depends on what the topic is. Mm -hmm. So, but I'm, I'm, I rely heavily on paper files. I rely heavily on Dropbox. Uh, I use Evernote. So I use a set of, I use a set of different tools, but it's, again, it's not, um, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty messy and chaotic. Got it. Well, the reason I bring that up is I think that, hey, you know, a police officer will write, uh, what seems like a library full of reports over the course of their mm -hmm. career. And it, you know, it's most definitely something that if they're not intently thinking about writing, uh, they should be because it's, you know, the, a, a, a crime report or an incident report is you're trying to, you're trying to lay out the best version of that incident happen. And of course, body cameras. Sure. And, and in-car cameras make things easier because you can see stuff, but then there's other things you just really can't see on video. Uh, of course. And so, and then as you ascend in an organization, you're going to have more writing projects with maybe writing a grant or proposals. And so it just becomes ever more important to, to be able to be good at that. And I think that sometimes, you know, we struggle. And so, oh, there's no question about that. So, so I, guess I mean, I think that all right, you know, I, I so, somehow we've been fed this mythology that writing is easy and orderly when in fact it's extraordinarily difficult. It's painful. It's disorderly. Um, you know, I always wonder, like in the midst of writing, why I chose to do this? <laughs> no doubt. Exactly. Had you ever ab completely abandoned ideas? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the only thing worse than abandoning an idea is is pursuing an idea that's stupid and that stinks. <laughs> yeah. Um, going back to, you know, I think you you touched on it earlier in regards to, and it's one thing that I'm very interested in is, you know, there's no one way to do policing. Um, I think it's, I mean, even in a in a particular organization, every community has their kind of their signature strength. And I look at my own organization mm -hmm. and there's pockets of communities that have different expectations of the police and, or, or they have very little expectations. There's areas that are very well connected and then there's er areas that are not so well connected. So from your perspective, what do you think makes a, a great police officer? Huh. I mean, I would, I would, I would, I would, I would, I would look at that from two, from two different vantage points. Um, one would be, you know, the, the, you know, the extent I know anything about what the research says about performance in general. And two, from my, my perspective of that as, as a citizen, mm -hmm. uh, I think that uh, uh, it would be uh, the, the thing I put at the top of my list would be um, integrity. Uh, I would also add, uh, I would also add empathy. Uh, I would add a, uh, a sense of, of purpose. Um, and I think like those integrity, empathy, and a sense of purpose are, would make us great at any job. I think they're especially urgent in policing. Right. And, 
what about when it comes to just, I mean, I guess at the, at the end of the day, the vast majority of communities never interact with their police officers. And, um, and the one thing that they do want them to do is to show up, uh, you know, fast when they call. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, but do you think police in a general sense do a really good job at, um, you know, at just connecting with the community in regards to your sense of like, I think that I'm not talking about ice cream socials or whatnot, but I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Just being in a Starbucks, for example, standing in line with somebody. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. It, it seems like the most people inter- are going to interact with a, a policeman or a woman when they're violating, whether it's a traffic law right, or right. or well, you said it really well. You said it. Wait, wait, you you're, that, that we 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 you know, uh, a civilian see police officers when they're when they're mad, bad, or sad. Right. You know. Um, so. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, here's the thing. I have an enormous amount of, of empathy and respect for police officers. It's a freaking hard job. Um, I'm, I don't think I, I, I don't know if I'm psychologically, mentally strong enough to do that kind of job. So I have a lot of empathy for that. Um, you know, like any kind of profession, whether it's teachers or nurses or lawyers or CEOs, I mean, there's some who are better than others. There's some who have more integrity than others. But, um, you know, in, in, you know, in, in general, I think the vast majority of police officers are people who are noble and want to do good. And if I were a police officer myself and was in that category and the majority who want who are noble and want to do good, I'd be really angry at the people who are not acting, the, the minority of police officers who are not acting that way uh, right. because they end up polluting the whole, the public's entire view of police officers. Um, I think I think that's so, very true, and I think the 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 bad, uh, the rotten apples in the profession. The last thing they'd ever want to see is a jury full of police officers, because I think the vast majority of police officers have no empathy for a policeman that doesn't have integrity. So uh, I think you're right. absolutely right. Right. I want I want to go back because um, you know when I did my graduate degree, uh, one thing that re- that, that I, when I was researching uh, stuff that I was working on, uh, I, I read uh, your ideas on employee engagement, the autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And so I, you know, kind of being a little bit of a meathead it, it, with it, I was like, okay, well, police officers have a lot of autonomy. Um, they, they have the opportunity to build mastery. And there's no doubt that what they do is purpose, is purposeful. But um, just like every other profession, we struggle with employee engagement, uh, probably to the same percentage wise that Gallup suggests that everybody does. And so I'm, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm you know, I, I've had more thoughts in, in this matter uh, in, in regards to those three concepts, but um, just on face value, do you, do you think there are enough? Um, do you think that they they're, they're both they're all like onions that need to be peeled back and looked at a lot more uh, uh, intentionally, or you know, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I'm not. When you say, I'm not sure what you mean by. I'm not sure I understand the question. Sorry. No, it's okay. So, like, so for example, police officers' uh, autonomy. I mean, uh, yeah, you work shift work. Uh, more often than not, I mean, you're driven by calls for service if you're a patrol uh, person, but you have the vast majority, or there's at least a, a, a percentage of your day that's going to be left up to for you to decide what it yeah, is yeah, you're yeah, going to do. Yeah. Um, and so is is that autonomy? Uh, uh, and then, again, the mastery is 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 there. There's lots of different things that you can do within a police organization to get good at. Yeah. I just don't seem to see, I like, I think when I go back to autonomy, um, I almost feel like that there's, there's times where because there's this divide or because maybe there's not an opportunity for more collaboration within, within the organization that yes, there's autonomy, but no, there's really not autonomy because at the end of the day, I'm going to have specific asks for you. 
and yeah. and and I'm driving work in a direction without input from you. Um, and yeah, you can acquire skills, but you might want skills in other areas that you know aren't always readily available to you. So, uh, so I guess I get, what I'm asking is, it's from my perspective, the autonomy, mastery, and purpose is a very complex monster that really needs almost an organization to look at really deeply in those areas and ask themselves those hard questions are, are they delivering this to people for, for them to get good engagement? Um, yeah, no, I, okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely. I don't think that uh, autonomy, mastery and purpose in a typical organization are just going to emerge in the way that the, you know, the sun rises in the East every morning. I don't think that they're going to happen um, or, uh, in every organization organically or without any kind of cultivation. And so what you have to do is you, I think any organization, whether it's a police organization or whether it's some other kind of entity, has to say, do we have the basic ingredients in our soil for these things to take root? But then do we have people who are essentially operating as gardeners who are going to tend to this and cultivate it? Right. And I, I just think that uh, uh, at the end of the day, too, w- when things are driven at the line level, and that's really what uh, drives me every day in, in the work that you know our organization does uh, at the National Command and Staff College is about making every officer a leader, and right, um, you know, really driving leadership down to the lowest level possible. Um, yep. And, and that, that itself is a form of autonomy because it's, it's, it's actually giving people, you know, sovereignty and over making decisions themselves. Right. Well, Dan, I, I really enjoyed talking to you. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that uh, I could go on for hours and hours. There's a lot of different questions that I, that, that, that I have for you. I know you're under a, a time crunch. I, I absolutely appreciate you joining us today. And uh, uh, thanks again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Brian. All right. Hey, be well. Okay. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for listening to our show today. And as always, we encourage your feedback. You can provide that feedback at my email at bellis at commandcollege.org. As always, good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Figure out who you are and be purposeful. Be well. Thank you so much for tuning into the BadgeCast One podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with a colleague. Please be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Statement and views on this podcast are those of the guests, and the opinions of the guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representation or warranties about guests or qualifications or credibility. This podcast is the product of the National Command and Staff College, copyright 2010 to 2035. Any use of this without the express consent of the National Command and Staff College is strictly prohibited by law. For more information, email us at infocommandcollege.org. At